I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Grace Chipperfield, reminding you no floor has a face here in the Great Concavity. Oh, that's dark. That's good. <laughs> I, I mean, well, maybe it's maybe it's light if there's no face in the floor. Yeah, well, I was wondering yeah. if it would be too like obscure <laughs> reference, but um, no black I, wings in the Great Concavity. I no, I mean if, if you've read in, if you've read Infinite Jest, hopefully it's not too obscure. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Awesome. Well, welcome everybody to episode thirty of the Great Concavity. We're joined by Australian scholar Grace Chipperfield. Grace, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's awesome to have you. We got the very great pleasure of hanging out with you at uh, DFW 17 uh, a few weeks ago in Illinois. And it was very cool to you know hang out. And we got to tour the, the grand city of normal Bloomington <laughs> together and uh, did a lot of photos and drank iced Bloomington coffee. Bloomington normal. Bloomington normal. Sorry, I, yeah. I reversed it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was cool. How was your, uh, how was your experience at the conference overall, Grace? It was amazing. I uh, So I came last year as well mm-hmm. and um, was very much the, like I thought it was awesome, but I sort of stayed probably on the edges, kind of just being introverted and everything. So, but then <laughs> getting to know you all online between then and mm-hmm. now, coming back to the conference, I was just very excited and you all lived up to even my highest expectations. So it was good. <laughs> I tried to manage them because I was like, I'll turn up and just... I need to like not be too over the top, but yeah, no, nah, it was awesome. Oh, cool! So our online personas like lived up to the the projection projected aspirations that you had for them. Yes, although okay. of course I'd like to say you're better in real life. So, but oh <laughs> wow, that's cool, very cool. Yeah, I think I think that like Twitter and these various platforms that we have to keep the conversation going are just really rich and important for the year between the conference and. I've, I've always felt super connected to everyone, you know, in the year and it goes by pretty fast because of it. And then Definitely. we were saying it's like going to summer camp, you know, every oh, year because totally. you're back yeah. with your camp buddies. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, from this point forward, and I'm pretty sure someone else has already said this, but like the thought of missing a conference would feel, would be very hard to sit with I would say I know Tony couldn't make it this year and he kind of asked me how it went but said he didn't really want to know because (laughs) he was sad he missed out you're like Uh, it was rubbish yeah that's pretty much what I said (laughs) I mean I missed it last year and I felt like I was definitely missing out like I tried to fool myself into that it would be you know oh I, I could make it up by next year and I feel like there's a huge difference in missing one year <laughs> i really regret that and i th- i think there are new people that you meet each time and uh, i'm not gonna miss uh, a year and i and i hope that there's a lot of talk about like where will the conference be and it's been in illinois state for four years now and i, I really hope it stays there and we can um, just re- have some place like that to return to every mm. year yeah, yeah it's definitely. the mecca the meccan pilgrimage almost Totally. Just, I um just kidding. In, no, I Sorry. no, I kind of think that's correct. And uh, <laughs> like when I filled out that survey this time round and they said, "Oh, where like where would you be happy to have it?" I was like, "Well, I'd kind of like it just to stay in normal like mm-hmm. but, you know, depends yeah. I guess on the financial situation." 
Right, yeah. And like, no offense to Islam with my comment, uh, relating <laughs> the two things, <laughs> not to be sad. I, I think... I think it has a colloquial meaning as well, Dave. Yes. Okay, cool. cool, cool, cool. Um, uh, let me back up and give Grace a little bit of yeah. the proper introduction. So we didn't read this officially, but I'm going to read your bio from the conference, which says Grace Chipperfield is a PhD candidate in creative writing, note, at Flinders University in Adelaide, South Australia. She's researching what it is to be an American citizen and how this relates to adolescence and adulthood in the works of David Foster Wallace. She also tutors in English literature at Flinders University. And what it doesn't say there is that she also is a recipient of a Fulbright. <laughs> Thank you for adding that. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a big deal. And uh, yeah. you know, we're going to talk a lot about your work and your project there. But uh, will you explain a little bit about your dual role there between um, creative writing and literature? Yeah, sure. So in terms of the PhD. Yes. Yeah, so we, um, it's a strange beast. We have to write a, what they call a novel length work, but it's probably more like a novella. Um, mm. So about 70,000 words of creative writing, and then that's bracketed by 30,000 words of um, the exegesis, which is meant to put the work in context. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the but distinction. I guess what I'm getting at is, do you see yourself as a writer um, doing criticism or as a, a scholar doing creative writing? It's, it's weird. Um, I think when I started, you got told a lot, this is a very schizophrenic process, you know, <laughs> some days you'll be in creative writer brain and other days you'll be in, you know, you'll have to be critical researcher and, and you'll also have to kind of critically analyze your own work and that's the part that I hate. But um, <laughs> so it depends what my supervisors tell me to do and when they told me to write the manuscript for my novel, um, I slipped very much into creative writer mode and that was so much fun and now I have to get back into researcher mode. So <laughs> I think both is the answer and I'm not sure now which I identify more with. Hmm. Interesting. Do you find the creative writing side more life-giving than the like critical scholarship side when it comes to sitting down at the computer? Um. Yes. I mean, I, th I find the creative writing side really cathartic in a way. Um, mm -hmm. But when I read good scholarship, that kind of um, is thoughtful and articulate. I get very excited too. So mm -hmm. um, I guess there's a difference between kind of producing the work, but and then as a researcher, I get to kind of learn from other people. So I like that side of it. Hmm. You know, the common thread there that I just, um, it makes me think of this writer, uh, Ricardo Pelia, who's a Latin American writer, and he does a similar thing where he writes criticism or wrote, he just died this year, but he wrote criticism and he also wrote tons of fiction. And he was asked often, like, what what are you? Are you a critic? Are you a novelist? Mm -hmm. And he, he, I think he identified himself most for, first and foremost as a reader, hmm. oh, okay. and that, and that he saw himself as a sort of autobiography could be read out of your bookshelves. Some of which is criticism, some of which is, um, you know, fiction. Right. And so I, I always thought that was an interesting, um, I don't know, definition uh, to try to draw the line between. Or to blur the line, maybe. So, I mean, not not many universities offer that creative writing in, in a PhD in creative writing. That's why I also mm. just wanted you to talk mm. about it a bit. 
yeah, yeah. I'm really um, excited that I get to do a PhD in creative writing, although, you know, everyone forecasts a very bleak future for me, so. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of job prospects? Sorry, nice. yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. There are other forms of richness, I suppose, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You can't worry about that too much. Yeah. <laughs> so, Grace, uh, maybe walk us through a little bit of your the presentation that you gave this year at uh, DFW 17. I unfortunately missed it, but Matt said it was excellent. And you ended up having to, you ended up being the lone presenter on your panel, and you just, like, you just worked it, and you, and you crushed. <laughs> so. Oh, well, that's, that's very nice to hear. Allow me I, uh... to live vicariously through your recap. Sure. Well, I mean, it was kind of the same as DFW 16. I turned up and thought it was just the norm that like I'd been slated to present by myself there as well. So Mm. um, that gave me practice for this year. But um, so my paper was, uh, what what did I title it? It was about um, the idea that uh, US citizens are in a state of protracted adolescence as that is US citizens as they appear in Wallace's work. So Mm I was looking at the reference in The Pale King that Wallace makes in section 19 where it says that US citizens are adolescent in their approach to their citizenship. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of, the paper was about kind of breaking down the use of that word more. And what that had led me to was um, adolescent theories in psychology and the idea of the identity crisis. And so I was talking about... um, how I felt that uh, U.S. citizens, there was a personal and a national identity crisis and how those interrelate and, um, yeah, looking at that. Yeah. And that that relationship between, um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting the way that you've set up this framework about the kind of developmental stages of kind of human maturity and then comparing that with national maturity. Mm-hmm. And... I, I think I told you after the paper I was a little bit defensive of it because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel like why well, are you saying American is immature? You say you're coming over here from Australia, but I I find that there's really something. I mean, of course, there's something to that, right? Uh, and I I would agree with you, but I think that uh, you know if if you could just dig into that a little bit more and talk about how that is reflected in some of Wallace's works, I think that would help us contextualize it. Yeah, sure. What you came off and said to me at the end of that paper was like my worst nightmare and I was kind of expecting it to happen as well because I was like, I am just an Australian coming over to like, you know, tell you all that you're acting like teenagers, but um, which is not, you know, that's obviously not quite as uh, nuanced as the research hopefully is. But um, so, yeah, so in terms of how I've read that into Wallace's works, um, I was sort of just looking at, you know, I don't think that he was, um, in his use of the word adolescent, just kind of criticising US citizens um, for being kind of immature or acting like teenagers. I think what he was pointing more towards was this idea of the identity crisis, which to kind of break that down a little bit more is um, really just in, in the psychology discipline, it's just a word used to mark a turning point in your um, development, I guess, where you have to kind of make some choices about who you are and what you value and where you want to go in life. And um, what I think is happening in Wallace's works is that, you know, um, his characters 
don't want to engage with that process because it's confronting and it's uncomfortable um, and it might, you know, it requires a level of self-reflection that might return some information to you that you're not particularly... Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so... I sort of, you know, in terms of psychology and everything, the idea is that, you know, once you go through the identity crisis, that's when you kind of achieve your identity. And it's also, you know, where you reach maturity and you become an adult, which, again, is not as clear cut as that. You, know, you always go back and forth and you always have multiple crises across your life. But um, so, yeah, so I guess, you know, my approach is looking at the characters in his works um, and the America that he represents in his, reproduces in his works and kind of seeing what's not um, allowing them to go or what is enabling them not to engage with that crisis and if there is any evidence in his works of someone that does and how that might look once they become, you know, what he considers to be a good adult or something. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I, I thought you had a ton of good um, e examples to, to back this up. And the one that really, there's a couple that stood out to me. One is that famous quote, I think it's from the McCaffrey interview, where he talks about the feeling of being at a party and everyone's parents are gone <laughs> and it's the morning after and ever the house is a wreck and you're just sort after of waiting Bacchanalian for the parents revelry. to come home <laughs> and that feeling of you know wanting like protection and comfort and support i mean that that to me i don't know if you have the quote handy i don't have the quote handy but, yeah that's the last um, page of the mccaffrey interview i mean Where's... that speaks very much to that sort of like absence or you know ambivalence towards you know strong authority figures and being stuck in adolescence yeah definitely i think you know there's that there is always that push pull between uh not wanting to be told what to do but wanting someone to take care of it definitely yeah the context of that quote is like he's talking about the state of u.s fiction right and we've reached this point of like postmodern nihilism and it's like that's the party was good for a while for a couple of decades but now it's like we just want some, what is it, restore some fucking order to the house, I think yeah. is the quote. <laughs> yes. you know? uh, yeah. and, and maybe that's kind of like his call in E Unibus Plurum to like have a new sort of uh, body of writers that restore, like that care about single entendre principles and all that moral stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, when, when he moves that kind of um, discussion into uh, his fiction and talks about, you know, these characters that don't want to grow up. I think he's just trying to work out, you know, um, like if you don't, if you can't rely on the parent to be there or if you're at the point in your life where you should have probably grown up by now, you know, like how do you do that? Um, and what choices do you have to make to do that, I guess? Mm -hmm. and, and that's Fogel too. So we talked a lot right, about yeah. Fogel because mm -hmm. he seems definitely stuck in that protracted adolescence and you know needs some kind of catalyst to force him out of his complacency or whatever mm -hmm. but th that i think you know we i press you a little bit on like well what is the solution then how do you get out of this protracted adolescence how do you actually mature and grow up and wallace offers a couple of solutions i think through gately or mm. you know something about taking personal responsibility and trying to be a better person. Uh, but 
can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, yes, well, definitely. I mean, as I said in the at the conference, you know, I don't think Fogel is uh, the the kind of template to be used in order to become an adult. I think, um, you know, Wallace, um, not to speak for him or anything, but like, I think, you know, uh, a lot of his work was kind of dealing with things that he found um, uncomfortable in himself or perhaps about the culture that he existed in. And Fogel's story seems to be like the extreme antithesis of that. Um in terms of taking responsibility and, you know, things that are dull and boring, being heroic and everything. Um, (laughs) So I think Fogel is just one example of how that might happen. But I mean, you're right. It's, he kind of has this whole section where he's talking about how he's primed to, you know, have these epiphanies and, and make these choices. And so in terms of, you know, how we end up growing up, I think, there is no one way that I'm going to be able to suggest with my research that says like, okay, well, this is what you need to do now. But I think usually what happens is there are symptoms there where you're not happy or um, you're trying to, yeah, you're not happy and you're trying to avoid that feeling of not being happy. And then you get to a point, and I think this might, I'm probably paraphrasing poorly, but there's like a, Oh no, you know you know who I'm quoting. I think I'm quoting John Mango from another episode, but um <laughs> He's a good where guy you to quote. say Yeah, that was that's an excellent episode. Um <laughs> where he says like this shit has got to stop. And right. I think that's when a lot of people start doing that thinking. Um mm. so I think you have to hit that kind of bottom in a way and work out like I can't continue feeling this way. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. No, it does. And there was another piece of that, though, that I think interested me and I didn't fully catch about how um, you had something about, you know, not equating like a nine to five job with happiness. And there was something like about Sisyphus in there. And I was like, my ears perked up very much. because (laughs) uh, I work a nine to five job day in and day out. And, you know, uh, fluorescent cubicle farm of the likes of which Wallace only imagined rather than lived. <laughs> right. And, uh, and Fogel sort of aspires to this, right? He sort of aspires to, you know, become this sort of cowboy of information and has like a semi-religious conversion. So, right. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's a lot going on there. Part of me wonders yeah, like what role religion plays in that. Yeah. Um, I, matri- maturation i don't know it's yeah i mean it's hard to i'm trying to sort of i mean i'm thinking back to um so i also did a, on honors thesis on wallace comparing like looking at him with Camus and that idea of sisyphus and right. um so and sisyphus i mean for me it is that that thing about how you're making at the beginning making a, a connection between choice and like emotional maturity whereas mm-hmm. are you really making a choice to roll a thing up a hill all the time if that's your sort of responsibility and i i guess i'm not being very eloquent about this either but I, i'm just wondering is it really a choice to be um you know that that kind of mature responsible citizen that you want like if if american citizens are are in this protracted adolescence then you know what what is the the choice that they need to make to to get there 
Right. Okay. Um, I guess, you know, uh, a lot of the problems that seem to resurface in Wallace's works is about that individualism and that idea that, you know, I'm the most important person and my happiness is the most important thing. So I suppose in terms of making a choice to grow up, um, it's also about making probably a, like, you know, an ethical choice or something to go, I do not get to just be the centre of the universe and, you know, there are other people in the world that also, you know, want to feel special and everything and kind of making a choice to um, just... That's that's Except good. That? That's good. No, like, that's good right there. And I think this is another side issue that came up in the conference a lot this year. And I'm, I'm part of the problem is that, um, I, you know, I think there was like a scholarly reputation for a while that the the graduation speech, the commencement address mm-hmm. was sort of like Wallace light. <laughs> And, and I think now I see it coming up into more and more scholarship being taken more seriously. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was a little bit of a shift this year. And like what you just said there about like you get to decide what to think. You know, you, you get this choice that is free will. And that is one of the key tenets of that commencement address as yeah. well. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I guess, you know, for me, um, like, you know, there are times in my day-to-day life where I, you know, feel really resentful or, you know, self-pitying and um, want to blame something else for the way that I feel and um, or that I think that things should happen a certain way for me. And, and I think, you know, when I am aware of those thoughts, I'm quite embarrassed by them. And I think, um, you know, part of that Kenyan college uh, commencement address is sort of just... Um, promoting a certain level of mindfulness about yourself and your thoughts that, you know, you might, you might yes. just kind of, that. I mean, you're having a childish thought and like, do you uh, acknowledge that that is what it is and choose differently, like choose not to just obey that thought or do you kind of just let it keep going and feel pretty rotten about the way things are? <laughs> you wrote a piece, was it last year, about um, this kind of question in the context of like... Um, political identity in the u.s and like how do citizens of a nation behave like adults and grow up to become adults when like their national leadership is displaying no qualities that look look anywhere remotely close to that uh, Mm -hmm. particularly with respect to donald trump yeah yeah and i mean um so i mean i should also say that when i talk about this research and everything i talk about it in an American context because that's what Wallace wrote about but I mean my interest in it comes from you know seeing these same things happening in Australia to a certain degree and Mm -hmm. in different ways okay I was gonna Um, ask you that yeah nice save (laughs) way to spread (laughs) spread it around a bit like i mean canadians probably fall into this category anyone in the british commonwealth uh all western developed nations basically (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) so not to put you down too much here matt (laughs) (laughs) um and so i mean i'm curious to know what you guys think about uh trump but i mean my approach (laughs) is that (laughs) that you know um it sounds quite harsh to quote Wallace in when he says, you know, we elect what we deserve. But there, I mean, I, I'm getting more and more frustrated back home 
with the political discourse and with, um, you know, I think politicians do behave in a childish way, but I'm not convinced that that isn't just because they don't really have much of an option when we as citizens don't really allow them to talk very honestly about mm. things. So, right. um, as in terms Australian, of American... are you also a little bit worried about the vampireness of Australian politicians? The you... vampireness. Do you remember this uh, John Safran versus God oh, uh, no, skit where I he don't. like goes to Canberra and there's like a rumor circulating that like you know there's like australia one of australians politicians is a vampire so he has like garlic and a huge crucifix and like a mirror and so <laughs> he gets kicked off because he's not allowed to have props uh, on parliamentary oh, really? grounds but anyways. that sounds very similar to there's a there's a um well they're not they're kind of in different form at the moment but there used to be a show called the chasers war and everything they yeah that's a great show stuff. yeah yeah so good yeah oh, that, man. they're one on the secret do you did you ever see that you know that book yes. the secret that's one of the funniest things i've ever seen <laughs> So good. Anyway, sorry, not to derail the conversation. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I have a couple of more questions about your, um, your framework and your research here about uh, Erickson, because I, I think that that's really interesting, the way that you're using the identity crisis. And in, in your paper, you mentioned something about, it was called diffuse avoidant identity processing right. s- syndrome or, or style. Or dipes. Dipes. Da- date, sure. Dates. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, uh, could, could you define that a little bit? Because to me, when you were saying the symptoms out loud, I was writing down like me, me, also me, <laughs> me, me, me. Maybe I have this. Can, so Very self-aware. Yeah, sure. In fact, I can probably quote the thing that I said. But basically, um, so there are, there are like four statuses of identity um, which I went through, which were um, achievement, moratorium, foreclosure, and diffusion. And then there were three styles, uh, and basically that is how people approach the identity crisis. So diffuse avoidant identity processing style, or as I was calling it, DAPES. Um, someone who uses this style, and this is the quote, will procrastinate and avoid identity-relevant conflicts and decisions as long as possible. <laughs> they have a fragmented or empty sense of self that continually needs to be bolstered and renewed by approval, acceptance, pleasurable experiences, or material possessions. And for them, alleviating distress and negative affect is more important than actually solving the problem they resort Jeez. to immature defensive processes such as denying personal responsibility and blaming others to excuse or rationalize potentially negative di- self-diagnostic information. And uh, when I read that, I was That's like, terrifying. oh man, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, it's just a tough pill to swallow, man. You, know, uh-huh. you just I put think it all right out there. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's tough because like as a teenager, you know, there's a level of... Um, acceptance that that might be the way that you are in the world for a while but as Mm -hmm. an adult when you recognize those things in you still it can be quite confronting yeah i mean there's a certain level of like um like biological brain chemistry that that facilitates that kind of approach to thinking about the world right like Mm -hmm. in my education degree we had a whole class on adolescent psychological development and it was like the most terrifying like two weeks of my life sitting through (laughs) some of this information because it's like their decision-making process tree is like so undeveloped and it really like it's kind of like into your like mid-20s where your brain chemistry starts to change in a way where you know you start to make decisions 
in a much more rational way and you don't see yourself as completely invincible. Um, mm. So it sounds like the protracted adolescence stuff you're talking about, like while it has to do with brain chemistry, what happens when your cultural climate is just mm. is like in limbo in that space? How do you come out of that? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, um, the paper that I presented in 2016 was much more about that cultural side of stuff. Mm. Um Versus like this year, it was very much more about the individual taking responsibility for um, themselves. So it -hmm. definitely is a bi-directional relationship. And it's really hard because it's that chicken or egg situation where you're always kind of feeding back one to the other and and the effects of it. Mm -hmm. And there's one other thing, I mean, brings up a ton of issues because that thing about blaming others rather than taking responsibility it also is at odds with that concept of, um, you know, the lack of strong parental authority figures. And then you can sort of blame all of these other things, like what was done to me right. uh, going back to really like infanthood. Mm-hmm. And you had another great connection in here about, uh, it was a quote from the cruise ship essay. Uh, and it was, about the I don't know if you can pull this up or get the quote yeah, about probably. he talks about connects being on the cruise ship to being like in the womb oh yeah and um I have the quote if you want it um please do please it was uh how long has it been since you did absolutely nothing I know exactly how long it's been for me I know how long it's been since I had every need met choicelessly from some place outside me without my having to ask or even acknowledge that I needed. And that time I was floating too. And the fluid was salty and warm, but not too. And if I was conscious at all, I'm sure I felt dreadless and was having a really good time and would have sent postcards to everyone wishing they were here. <laughs> just great. I mean, Jesus. I mean, that sent chills up my spine and partly because I feel like that amusing ourselves to death or comforting ourselves to death, you know, that Wallace really didn't live to see the full flowering Mm. of the distraction level that can be accomplished by an iPhone. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the ability to do nothing or freeze your mind and think nothing and to avoid. He talks about this a lot, and I think he saw a little bit of it coming, um, but the ability to to think nothing and to do nothing and distract yourself from real world to me the dominant future future is going to be about that screen issue mm-hmm. yeah definitely i um i mean i went away for like a weekend earlier in the year where i knew that my phone wouldn't have service and i didn't didn't want to eat up my data so i turned that off and um i actually almost finished a book and it was great and <laughs> Yeah, I've been because reading the same just, book for like three weeks and I'm only yeah. like on page 50 right now yeah. for this very reason. Yeah, Exactly. It's just very easy. It, I mean, that, that's the thing, right? Like it's just really easy to pick up your phone and yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in the, in the past year or two, it's gotten, you know, compounded by the fact that at least here in the U.S., we live in a total fucking dystopia. <laughs> and, yeah, so you asked Matt's thoughts on Trump. Here we go. And, uh. and every time, you know, you pick up your phone, it's more like what, you know, rights are being stripped from our fellow citizens, what yeah. kind of awful discrimination is being, you know, built into the Constitution and the yeah. Supreme Court. Now, I mean, it goes on and on. So it's really distracting. I find mm-hmm. it. Uh, even more so distracting that just at the touch of a button anywhere, anytime, you can sort of feed this 
fear, you know? Yeah, yeah it's and like I the, mean, the rat you... button, right? The rats that hit yeah. the, the pleasure button, but it's mm. the opposite. Yes. And and we're every time you go onto Twitter, you just see like really awful things about this stuff for the most part. But yeah, you keep going back there every day and you just feel rotten after. But yeah, I but mean, it's I wanted so to ask. Compelling. Well, like, do you get. Um... See, my, my reaction to that normally is fatigue and I want to switch off from that. So, like, do you find that yeah. it's so compelling that you need to read every article on Trump that there is? Or do you find that instead what that means is that you go elsewhere for distraction in the same kind of medium? I mean, I go back and forth. I think there's something built into the technology, though, that is addictive. Yeah. And, and it is messing with uh, my brain chemistry in the way that, like, an addictive substance would. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, if you get really addicted to something, it's not like, you know, if you're abusing a drug, like if you're abusing something and you know you're using it to, I don't know, you know, seek some pleasure that you can't find elsewhere. It's a different thing when you're addicted to it where you need it for your brain to sort of stay at equilibrium. Um, so I don't know. I think that there's something really toxic about it, and I'm, I'm like, addicted to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't like reading about it. Sometimes I would rather read books, and I do. I still read. Um, you know, I finished two books in the past seven days. Oh my god, um, that's amazing. Yeah, Matt, Matt's pretty <laughs> but, voracious. He puts us all. But <laughs> but it's because I mean, but it's it's a war, right? Yeah. It's a war for attention. And yeah. Wallace is very big about this, and I think that it is going to continue to infantilize our intellectual society or our, you know, world of thoughts and certainly our current federal government is contributing to the anti-intellectualization of American society in a big way. Mm. And I find this all just extremely troubling, uh, especially after eight pretty great years of Barack Obama. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite Uh, a departure. Like it's, they're kind of like binaries of each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had a two part interview in the New York review of books with Marilyn Robinson. I don't know if either of you read Obama. Oh, maybe. Marilyn Robinson. Is this when he was talking didn't. about reading, creating empathy? Yeah, he was talking about reading. He was talking about literary history and novels. I mean, mm. it's phenomenal. And really, to imagine any of our recent Republican presidents, mm. I, I can't do it. Like, I can't even imagine any of them talking about yeah. um, literature in this way. Yeah. And and that to me is just really troubling that the fact that the country is, um, you know, that we're in this place to begin with, and have got to somehow dig really deep to get out of it, mm-hmm. and you know that that to me it, I I think that's why your research is so relevant, and we wanted to talk to you about this identity crisis because I feel like we're we're living in it. Yeah, I um, it's it. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I, last year when I, I did my first paper, uh, the election outcome was still very much up in the air. And right, I think yeah. I genuinely went to, um, well, it was our evening when the um, when Trump became president. Um, and I had thought for the entire day that, like, you know, this is just, it's Clinton, you know, like... Um, this is kind of a, is a shock to the system, but mm-hmm. like it'll go back to the status quo. And yeah, so it was uh, quite, I don't, I don't really know how to interpret it yet. Mm-hmm. Have you guys seen the film Idiocracy? 
Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's mostly filmed in Austin. Oh, was it? Mike, okay. Mike Mike Judge is an Austin original. Oh yeah. Uh, big parts of Office Space were filmed here. Oh, and good. Plenty of his other stuff. Uh-huh. And you know, Mike Judge was interviewed recently in the New York Times and was asked about Idiocracy, yeah. and he was like, maybe he was a little too optimistic. Oh, that's, what he said. that's bleak. <laughs> I mean, for one, I, the, in the movie, the there's a character who is the Secretary of State who is sponsored by Carl's Jr. <laughs> and he's just like, he has to say the word Carl's Jr. in like every sentence. And Trump actually tried to nominate the CEO of Carl's Jr., to be the secretary of labor and had to pull the nomination. So, I mean, like we're almost there. And in the movie, it takes 500 years to get to this complete dystopian idiocracy. And it's like, we did it in about five months. (laughs) (laughs) And I I mean, I don't know. um, I don't know if the, I guess the bigger problem too, Grace, maybe you can talk about this is really that the, electoral politics is sort of a reflection of the underlying problem. I mean, what what do you, because I think some of this has been building up for years. What do you see as really some of these underlying issues? Is it really about emotional maturity or anti-intellectualism or education in general? Like, what is it? Um, I mean, I think I think it's tricky to pin it on one thing. Um, I think solve it. American politics. <laughs> go. <laughs> well, perhaps I'd feel more comfortable relating it to Australian politics. Um, I sort of uh, see, um, you know, people tend to find politics boring, and so they don't really want to pay attention to it. So the politicians start talking in sound bites because that's or that we're willing to digest, or they start talking about what the other guy did wrong rather than, you know, actually having a, a nuanced conversation about things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't seem to be particularly, uh, and again, I'm being so general that, like, even Australians will start hating me as well. But, um, you know, we don't seem particularly interested in having a thoughtful conversation about that. It's become uh, what I think... Wallace was really concerned about which was that like that partisanship you know that inability to actually talk beyond just what your party is um and and to listen to the other guy and so I think that it's just this kind of weird feedback loop where you know um like back here uh we have this show called Q&A where um politicians and and other commentators come on and it's a panel discussion and and um Australian citizens can ask questions and inevitably when it gets to the major party uh, representatives they kind of devolve into this thing of like well the other party did this and you know Mm -hmm. and we wanted to do that and it just really reflects this kind of childishness um, and stubbornness about kind of maybe you're not right or maybe you need to listen to someone else and so I think it's all and then yeah the media feeds it as well and there's there's a whole lot of stuff going on there, which is just tricky. So I don't know. But that I that think idea about, I, you know, what you're saying about the ambivalence, like the general ambivalence toward specific um, political leaders and figures can, that feeds into what you're saying about the developmental process where there's sort of an absence of parental authority figures um, or an ambivalence towards them. But to me, there's another 
issue where I imagine being Australian, right? And I imagine growing up in a world where there is a strong safety net, which there is not in the United States. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that sort of social safety net is an authority figure, or it's something that's a protector. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, if your identity feels a little bit different, knowing that even if you fail at life, even if you don't (laughs) create a new business, like you're going to be okay. Whereas that's, that's not true in the US. Like there's a strong likelihood you could be go to prison or become homeless mm-hmm. or you know really screw up your life. And you know we have m- more violence and guns and all of these other issues that combined with the lack of a social safety net, like what is is the true parental or authority figure that people need? Is it that political system, political leader or is it really this kind of social safety net both ideally I guess I mean you're right I think in Australia I feel very uh secure um and I think that there's a level of stability perhaps to the point of not much change at all but like there's certainly a stability to our political system and I mean you know we have compulsory voting and everything so there's a level of engagement with that too really I I didn't know that yeah, yeah. So if you don't vote, you get a fine. So, oh, crazy. Um, yeah, which I was only having a conversation about this yesterday. Um, and, and I mean, that's not the case in America. And, and I was talking to someone um, and she was saying, you know, I, I would resent being told to that I had to vote when I, you know, if I want to choose not to vote and everything. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a, I think there are some systems in place in Australia that give us security that there doesn't there isn't in America and perhaps that is yeah part of that feeling that you of individualism or um sorry I hope you didn't hear that I just got a notification um (laughs) (laughs) there's that feeling of um individualism maybe in America where it's like well I have to take care of myself and and there is that self-interest associated with that I'm not sure was it an American who said that to you about like being upset Uh, that someone would force them to vote no, she's Canadian, actually. Oh, a Canadian said um, that, really? Yeah. How infantile. You're not perfect either. <laughs> but see, both of your countries have the, you know, you have the socialized medicine, yeah. and you you have smart gun policies. You mm-hmm. have a lot of kind of also the stigma that is in America with, you know, taking government assistance is so strong and it's considered to be that you have failed at life and you are maybe not even human (laughs) if you are on i'm I'm dead serious like about if you take assistance from welfare food stamps Mm -hmm. and that you really are trash you're a parasite on society or something you're garbage human and you're the what's wrong with america and you need to you know be ashamed and just live in shame. And that is part, I think, of what drives us into these factions. And it's exacerbated by having two political parties. I mean, Australia and Canada both have multiple mm. political parties and different voting systems that um, you know, give me some hope that other Western reforms might eventually trickle down to our political system. Mm-hmm. But today and middle of 2017 it feels pretty broken yeah it's also Um, a weird thing too for me about america in that like if you think about like the the like protestant puritanical origins of the u.s and like 
the idea of the city on the hill is it john winthrop i think uh and like the idea that america is a christian nation and yet like what you just described to me matt is sounds like so socially darwinian that, yes. that truly like everyone is on their own the government yes is is not there to like you know pre- prefer grace in certain cases where where it's needed like it's just like that claim the republican idea still that like we're representing like uh christian values is just so totally bonkers no it's, <laughs> it's not it's not no longer anything to do yeah with, like you can't especially with that. trump yeah uh, it's not any kind of moral argument mm-hmm. anymore it's very much a capitalistic mm-hmm. idea where uh, you know, Ronald Reagan was a big part of this, yes. and that Ron- Ronald Reagan pushed this idea that you know anyone can become a millionaire, mm-hmm. and this is the one country in the world where you can become a millionaire, and that's that's really what you should aspire to, not to or to being a Christian or being a great person, yeah, but yeah. being a millionaire, yeah. and that's really gets back to the Kenyan speech, yes. what you worship, <laughs> and it's like if you worship money and Man. things, if that's where you tap real meaning, mm-hmm. guess what? You'll never have enough, mm-hmm. and. America has the you know most billionaires, and it's just a matter of time until you know Amazon becomes the first trillion dollar company or Apple becomes a trillion dollar company, and that's really what where we tap real meaning. But now I'm just like it's not even a question. I'm just ranting. I should really get back to a question for you. Um, but the, when you were first, we first asked you like, are you a creative writer or academic, um, Grace? That to me, I realized like after we started talking about Erickson is kind of an identity crisis in its own, or maybe <laughs> sure. I, maybe I'm projecting that it's an identity crisis, right? But I, I wonder um, that that kind of dualism where you have two, you know, a creator on one side and a, a critic on the other side. That you know, is there a part of it that is? Um, you know, naturally you have more affinity towards? Um, I think, um, I, I would say that a year ago I was more, um, interested in the critical side of stuff probably because, um, I found that maybe less scary than the creative writing side of things. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) it is less scary. And yeah, yeah. Especially when, you know, you consider showing that stuff to another person. Mm-hmm. Um, but now having written the creative side of things, I felt that there was a lot more flexibility in that side and kind of the ability to look at things from a few perspectives. So um, I think the, I think my critical brain can be a bit um, overbearing sometimes and that means it's hard to write and so the creative side probably probably is where i i'm more aligned with now Hmm. so you're siding with with our man wallace on that and that he viewed himself as a creative writer and then just happened to do like critical stuff on the side yes you know for money or whatever Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. but I mean, I think there are some great critical writers that um, are as interesting to read as you know um, fiction and everything. And um, Erickson, for example, is is a very engaging writer and quite. um, I think if I like, I think he was quite a cheerful and sort of um, I don't know conversational writer, which I thought was really good too. I don't think that you. 
I think critical stuff can be entertaining. Oh, God, that's dangerous to say. can be <laughs> engaging. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Available on demand. Yeah. Well, I mean, one reason why I keep coming back to this is that, you know, our conference that we go to is unique in that the the founder of the first conference, Jane Carmen, shout out to Jane. Yeah, Jane. She, I think, also is a creative writer and has a PhD in creative writing from Illinois State, which is unique in that they offer a PhD in creative writing. And she was pretty insistent that the conference have creative writing panels in addition mm. to scholarly panels and i i've never been to an academic conference that does this like i have never seen an academic conference especially one for a single writer that that gives any kind of precedence to creative writing or reading uh, at all so i i think it's unique that there are only a couple people and you're one of them who can go to a conference like that and present both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think and it's I, awesome. I, and I think that it's, it's something that at least we think about, or I think about in terms of Wallace's legacy and what he leaves behind to academia and versus literature on a broader scale. Uh, I mean, what what's your opinion on that about, you know, his legacy in the academic world versus in, you know, the public, the reading public? Um, well, I think, um, I think, and this might be a little bit off topic, but like uh, tangential to that, I think one of the cool things about this conference is the the crowd that it draws and mm-hmm. um some people come just because they're fans of their readers and they like him as an author which i i mean the david foster wallace conference is the only one that i've ever really been to and i think i lucked into that as well because i think it's just probably quite unique and also really precious for that um so i think that you know uh, Wallace, why it's, it's so interesting to come to a conference is that, you know, and Matt Luder sort of alluded, well, talked about this in his presentation as well, is that yes, there's that blend did. of the personal with, you know, people don't view Wallace just as purely something to be broken down and kind of um, analysed in really obscure ways, but more there's always that personal connection, that emotional attachment to his writing. And um, so I think that's quite a unique legacy that he's left behind. No, I think that's exactly where I was going with that in that to me, if a writer is going to have any kind of um, immortality, it's going to be with people who are just discovering him or her. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of 19 year old kids picking up infinite jest this summer. Mm -hmm. And to me, those are the people who, are going to keep him relevant rather than, you know, 12 people from the University of Manitoba. Um, <laughs> no offense. Manitoba had like a department on Wallace. <laughs> that'd be, uh-huh. that'd be the day. <laughs> but, but do you know what I mean? Like if you get <clears throat> like three tenure track professors who publish about a writer in a three journals that no one reads to me, mm-hmm. that's almost as worthless as that's extinction to you it's extinction right (laughs) you might as well not even exist and that that to me is a lot different than having 
you know, 1,200 Tumblr pages or right. Twitter accounts mm. that are fan accounts. And so having that combination of fan and academic to me is, is also a huge, um, unique feature that I, I yeah. d- definitely do not see in other individual author societies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that's, you know, hopeful given that, you know, politics has taken a turn towards social media and everything as well, that, you know, an author can also cross that boundary and maybe, I don't know, Mm. balance things out a bit. Well, and it's still a very young field too, where there's a lot of people who come to this conference and give their first conference paper Mm -hmm. and have, you know, just gotten their first job or published their first book. So I think there's, um, there's a lot of future ahead of us mm-hmm. um, in this conference. So uh, it's really great to to talk to you now before you're famous. <laughs> <laughs> I that's yeah, that's great. <laughs> we'll see what happens there. Yeah, speaking of uh, of your creative writing endeavors, can you give us like any kind of uh, preview into the novel that you're working on for your dissertation or is that kind of like top secret at this point? No, I'd be happy to. I I mean, I'm a little concerned too because, um, well, the, the inspiration for the novel was, um, so in a topic last year, I had to teach, uh, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf and also the hours by Michael Cunningham, Hmm. um, which I'd read as an undergrad and had found, you know, like, Eh. And then I reread them when I was a bit older and I just thought they were amazing books. And so I guess, you know, the novel is trying to do for Wallace what the hours did for Mrs. Dalloway, which is quite an ambitious way of putting it, but perhaps the simplest way. Um, So the reason I'm concerned to kind of give you a bit of a peek into it is because um, I have borrowed characters from Wallace's works. Oh, um, cool you know, particular narrative um, styles and everything to try and um, pay tribute to his writing. So... Mm. Can you say I, which characters? Yeah, I... So, <laughs> right. Like um, Pemulus, fingers crossed. Yes. <laughs> really? Yeah. Pemulus, yeah. And um, Meredith Rand and Lane Dean Jr. and Leonard Stesek and um, Kate Gompert appears, but as the daughter of Meredith Rand. So, oh, wow, um, cool. I have really enjoyed it, but it'll be interesting for someone from the Wallace community to uh, approach that, and because mm. I know that uh, there's, there's that that could, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it how it's <laughs> received. Uh-huh. Well, I think wow. I think the good thing is that the Wallace community seems to be pretty graceful on on most things, from what mm. I've experienced. So you're probably going to be in good hands, I think. Yeah, maybe it's, a mixed, it's a mixed bag for me. Um, yeah, I, it's yeah. I I think that that idea is is super interesting, and um, to bring it back to the the hours and Mrs. Dalloway, I think Michael Cunningham is a greatly underrated writer, and uh, if you ha- he also did a similar thing with Walt Whitman in Specimen Days, mm. and if you haven't read that one, I. I think it's fantastic anyone out there if you want to read specimen days by michael cunningham um and ben lerner took it another step and did a thing about specimen days in his book 1004 
that's like following up on partly on Michael Cunningham and Whitman together. So it's like, oh, wow. you know, their literature gets a bad rap for like, oh, music you can remix and you know you can have remakes of films and it's like, well, literature does that too. Mm-hmm. So I, I think they're, you're you're in a fine tradition. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I know that you know. Um, I know how much I uh, attach to certain characters in Wallace, so I, I guess, you know, I don't want to be the, the shitty sequel that um, <laughs> everyone, you know, thinks trashed the characters, but I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'll let someone read it from the community and they can give me a preview of what's in store. <laughs> well, since you mentioned um, Meredith Rand and Kate Gompert, uh, what's what's your take on Wallace's ability to write female characters? Um, I can see why uh, there has been discussions recently about um, his ability to write female characters. But, like, to be honest, you know, as a female reader of him, I guess I'm... I think he speaks... I don't think... hmm, How to put this? I don't read um, those characters and and feel, like, uh, offended or anything. In fact, I think a lot of the stuff that he writes about in his work that whether it's a female or a male character I identify with. So I think that's Mm. my take on it. Um, But I mean, there's obviously, I think there are some other scholars out there probably that were at DFW 17 that could weigh in more authoritatively on how he treats (laughs) female characters. Mm. Samantha Wallace gave a great talk about that. Mm. Well, but I, but I think, I guess my interest in it is exactly what you just said in that is that, is that a way of saying, well, then he can't write it <laughs> because mm. otherwise it's just like, well, it's universal. It's, it's, it could be anything. It's the like, oversoul to me. Is it even is no, this is a big issue of like, are you appropriating a woman's voice or should a male author even try? Mm. Like if it's just going to be, you know, something that's universal, um, you know, I, as I don't in, know. like, if I, the the character is talking, right. is meant to convey a universal theme, why make it a fe- like? Why does it right become? Mm. I mean, I I think that he should. I think any author should like. I mean, by that logic, I shouldn't write from a male perspective, right? So, um, I think it's just that. So that's a crappy argument. I'm not saying that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just think you know um, the. The job of a writer, uh, yeah, I mean, it gets tricky, doesn't it? But um, I don't think that he should not have written female characters. And I don't think that just because maybe they don't um, seem unproblematic that they shouldn't exist either. I think it was good of him to try. And I think that um, there's a lot that is, like, truthful about those characters as well. Um, So, yeah. But uh, what I mean, what do you think of the female characters in his works, Matt? I'm just, I'm just here to, I'm here to ask you those questions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're gonna play the host card. I, I think what it's, you're gonna do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. His first novel, right? His first, his first published book, yeah, um, is the female protagonist, mm-hmm. and I think there's, you know, a couple different ways you could look at that. You could say, well. It's just a thinly veiled version of him. It doesn't matter if it's male or female. Right. It's just a thinly veiled... And it's like, well, is that any weaker art? Um, I don't know. I'm tempted to say that a great novelist can do anything, and great fiction is magic, and you can mm. transform anything. Mm. 
and a male voice, female voice. To me, he he wanted to do all of those, so sure, why not? Yeah, and I mean, in terms of Broom of the System, um, I my my sort of little theory about that could well, I mean, I tend to write from male um, perspectives. I, I didn't make that a conscious choice. I think it just happened, um, and that's partly because I think I wanted to distance myself from my my head voice and mm-hmm. I don't know maybe you know for him I mean, even if it is a thinly veiled autobiography um maybe that was just a way of kind of putting some space between him and his character I'm not sure but well it's a lot to think about I didn't mean to spring it on you I know it's not your um area of expertise I, I enjoyed to be like, I, I'm just trying to avoid bringing up the the trump word again so um. as always yeah <laughs> yeah i mean but. i think um we'll put it this way as a to go back to what i was saying as a female reader of wallace i don't kind of uh i mean there's been a lot recently about whether he's a misogynist or all of yeah. that and i don't i don't see it that way i sort of think i identify with stuff that's in the book and it doesn't really matter to me whether it's from a male or female perspective so yeah, yeah. Um, again, I think it's something that I have made a conscious effort to um, be open-minded about other people who have that opinion, and uh, it's been a an interesting um, experience to see this kind of reaction to him because a lot of those books existed for many years without that reaction, mm. and I, you know this is something. Also, I just didn't give too much credence to like what is Wallace's critical reception because I was just like, it's awesome. His critical reception is great. It should be great. He should have won the National Book Award, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to see his critical um, reception kind of change with the political times, it is a little bit related to, to your political project, hmm. you know, and, and how the U.S. kind of moves through different phases of what matters in politics. That's a cool well, line of thought, Matt. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I just think threw that together. That's <laughs> I like that question. I think that um, uh, what's it, I mean, what what confuses me a little about where the criticism around Wallace has gone is is why um, you know there is that expect that expectation on one author to be everything to everyone, you know, um, and I think there are plenty of strong female writers out there, and I think. Um, it's also good that Wallace tried to write female characters. Like I'm surprised uh, at how it's become very much about him in particular, I guess, hmm. as well. So like the death of the author is not uh, is not something that people are buying these days. Oh, <laughs> the no, no. That's very much alive. Yeah. But that's a good question in that, you know, for me, that that is not an, a problematic thing at all because to me that just proves that Wallace is relevant as opposed to like 25 other contemporary American writers being as relevant. And I'm wondering if, if you see yourself as becoming an American literature scholar or a David Foster Wallace scholar. Ooh. Um, At the moment it's very much David Foster Wallace, but I think that, um, I would like to have other facets to my research that would probably lead me in different areas. So, like Australian at the moment, politics, maybe. 
Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I feel kind of, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think I just love Wallace, but sometimes I feel guilty that I don't have quite as uh, strong a background in Australian riders um, <laughs> and all of that. But certainly that seems to be where it's headed. So oh. um, at the moment, it's very much Wallace scholarship, but uh, that's pretty much just because I've been living and breathing him for the last four years. Yeah. So, What was it for you, Grace, that like lit you up about Wallace in such a specific way? Um, so I had, I was very, I mean, Wallace isn't so well known in Australia and I was really lucky to come across him in my undergrad. Um, Hmm. one of the lecturers set good old neon as a reading Oh, cool! and yeah. And, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that they read it and were just like, what, like, how has this person, you know, produced a more articulate, um, but you know, that's my brain voice just done Mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. And, um, from that. She then, the lecturer showed us uh, snippets from the Charlie Rose interview mm-hmm. and her comment was that, you know, we're watching this just because like, let's look at, you know, it was an uncomfortable interview. He was quite awkward and I remember <laughs> yep. watching it. Well, yeah, but I remember watching the snippets going, but man, like he's just so smart and yeah. like articulate and thoughtful. And so from that, I just went and I think I watched a lot more of the interviews and, and then I bought Oblivion and like it just, and then I bought all the books and um, <laughs> then the Pale King came to me and, and I must say I've read the Pale King more times than I have Infinite Jest and yeah. by more, that's, so I'm more familiar with that. And um, yeah, I think, I think, you know, he came, what, what has stuck around for me with him is that, you know, he became a really central part of my own mental health journey um, mm. and research and, um and, and that that's where that personal connection that I was talking about um, in terms of Matt Luder's paper as well. You know, I, I had a very emotional attachment, to, still do have an emotional mm-hmm. attachment to his works. Yeah. Um, as teaching, uh, as formative things for me, I think. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, his works were just, that they've been quite formative for me in that respect as well. So, I mean, yeah. in, in devoting my research to him, it's been uh, partly about, kind of um i guess being grateful for for what his writings given me yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's the you know the fact that you brought up good old neon there. I was like that is an identity crisis <laughs> mm. uh, of a, of a story. Like if there is an identity crisis short story, that is it. Mm. And I, I go back to that story probably more than anything else Wallace has written. And it's partly because he's trying so hard in that story to get to get it out to get this mindset out on paper and and also resolve it with himself at the end that part about being at war with himself like that part just crushes me whenever he talks about bringing himself into that story uh, of mm. what's really this guy Neil um, and and I think there's just something super interesting about the narration in that story. Uh, I don't want to get into it too much now because I don't really have the the story handy. But the way that that point of view shifts in that story to being in the car when the guy dies mm. is uh, super profound. Like maybe the best thing he's done in my opinion is so you started like on a high note. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty lucky, and I mean, I think it. Um it responds to that a really interesting thing you know that idea of feeling like a fraud and Mm -hmm. feeling alone in that feeling and then you realize that obviously you're not because someone else I don't know it goes down a whole thing of you know 
him making people feel less alone and everything. I think it's a really strong story. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm glad that was my introduction. There's a lot going on there. Um, and to, to shift gears a little bit, um, I, I'm reading the new book by Gerald Murnane. Uh, I'm wondering if you could recommend some Australian writers to us. <laughs> I've already Joe said Murray. I have like very little <laughs> knowledge of Australian writers. Okay. Um, There's got to be something you it's would like recommend. Like David Mitchell's that one. Uh, That's he's not Australian. <laughs> oh, isn't he? I no, he's he grew up in Japan. I mean, lived in Japan. Oh, uh, okay. This is uh, this is hard. Um, I think that my exposure to Australian literature has been really limited, weirdly enough. Um, at university, it's been a lot of British stuff. Um, I'm trying to think. A lot of the Australian things that I'm reading, and I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, have been more critical pieces. So I, we can, I we like can, to... We can cut this later, Grace. Don't Good. worry. Can we? Yeah, we'll make you look <laughs> like not a fraud. <laughs> Don't, don't worry. We'll just end literature. with the good old neon thing. We'll just let <laughs> yeah, this go yeah. Out. Well, my PhD is in contemporary American literature, not Australian. Oh, so yeah. um, I that have a very selfish is, question for you me. You know, but that's like me oh, too no. about Canada. Like I really read very few Canadian authors. Like it's quite embarrassing because I just think American authors are just, you know, far and away much better and there's way more of them so it's like I think you're right about canadian is not known for its i mean we have some good writers like douglas copeland is obviously great and I mean, margaret atwood, margaret atwood is Monroe, celebrated obviously robertson davies i guess yeah 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 um, yeah, and certainly don't see my inability to recommend someone as uh, indicative of Australia's output. I yeah. Mean, like, <laughs> even in Adelaide, we have this thing called Writers' Week, which is this incredible... Um, I mean, it, it brings a lot of international authors to Adelaide as well, but it's, a, you know, there's a lot of Australian authors there. And, um, yeah, my ignorance is purely more to do with where my, my research interests have ended up rather than... I apologize. Right. Again, <laughs> I just really am selfish in that I'm always looking for new things. I am too yeah. I, I understand that i've only read a few australian writers gerald murnane being one of them who i really like mm-hmm. and um helen garner is another one i really oh, like yes. she's yeah. a, a more of an essayist i guess but mm-hmm. um steve Toltz. i don't know if you've read him he was compared to wallace a few times so i picked him oh, up really? uh he had a book uh, a couple of years ago called quicksand i read that book mm-hmm. um I liked Peter Carey okay. I'm not a huge historical fiction person. But mm-hmm. Have you ever come across Luke Davies, the poet, Grace? Oh, yeah. No. So his, so he wrote a book of poems called Interfere on Psalms that shares the same uh, Robin O'Neill images that we use for a podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. That's so cool. And I've been trying to get my hands on it for years, but it's like, it's impossible. I went to, I think I mentioned this on an episode a long time ago, but I went to, I was in Portland and I went to Powell's Books. And they're like, we've never heard of that. It's not in our system. And I was like, well, if those guys don't have it, then I'm pretty hosed in North America <laughs> to be able to get it, I think. so. Oh, man, I have to see if I can get it in Australia. Yeah. I think it's, it's wildly funny that, you know, you guys are the ones giving me recommendations about people <laughs> to find here. <laughs> well, well, it's really funny because I, <laughs> I mean, I asked Tony and um, Nick. I asked, you know, Lucas Thompson. I ask all of these people this question because I just want to read good stuff. And... Mm-hmm. um, Tony pointed out that when he was in the archive there is a um, copy of a Peter Carey book that is in Wallace's archive and Wallace wrote on the author cover that Peter Carey had eyes like weak tea (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know if that's like a compliment or an insult. I, I think it's an insult. Probably I mean, just it's an <laughs> observation. <laughs> yeah. Eyes like weak tea. Uh, and it's like nothing about the book itself. <laughs> so speaking of the archive, you are going to be spending uh, not a little time there next year, Grace? Yeah, no I'll have about um, six months there. Yeah, um, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it'll be... I mean, I'll have to talk to Matt about how to approach the archive. I had about five days there last year before the Wallace conference and um, was just kind of like, I don't know, picking what looked interesting or what I thought might be relevant, but it wasn't particularly systematic. So, um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to go back and actually see, be able to have time to see everything, I think. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, one of the biggest things I tell everyone who goes for any length of time is to go into it with an organizational system in mind for your photos. Oh, yeah. Because they, they allow you to take photographs, right? Mm-hmm. So most people who are there for, you know, if you're there for a week or two weeks, you're just going to go and you're not even going to read very much. You're just going to be photographing, turn a page, photograph, you know, and then put the box down, get a new box, photograph it, photograph it, and then you can go read it at your leisure when you get home. But being there for six months is a little different. Yeah. I mean, you'll be you'll be living in it, so you you will have a whole new approach to the archive. It'd be really interesting to see what you do. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, there's I even on my desktop right now. There's just one folder that's that's like the archive photos, which I have not even sorted out properly <laughs> since I went. And yeah, it was exactly that, that experience. Was a year ago. Just taking a yeah, yeah, just taking a photo of every single page that I came across. And uh, no, no system at all. So I'll have to go back with a different thing in mind. <laughs> and the uh, the other, um, you know, the other the other piece of that is like once you go there ever every day and sort of you know what interests you more. Um, it, it's really hard because even in six months you'll find things that interest you more, and mm. you'll want it, you'll want to connect to other archives or or pull in. Um, cause they keep getting more stuff. So, I- yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, like I'm going there particularly for the Wallace archive, but like they've got heaps of things that I want to look at and we'll probably get sidetracked going into. Yeah. And I mean, they have, uh, heaps of Wallace stuff too, that they keep adding to and the, the, the little Brown files alone and the Bonnie Nadell collection alone. I mean, once you go through all of those is, is a huge project to go through all that correspondence. So I, I think you have your work cut out for you, but yes. um, I, you know, David, at the beginning, you said that like ISU is, is like a Mecca conference for us. It's like another one is just coming to the archive yeah. and, mm. you know, right now, today, tomorrow, there will be someone in that reading room pulling out Wallace files and, and studying it. So to me, that it's a very bright future for the field. Yeah. Mm. Do you feel abreast of everything that's in that archive? Oh, like, do you feel? No. No, I mean a little bit, yes. Um, Do you think but, you've spent the most time in it out of anyone, Matt? No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's also people who go to it that you know I don't know. Yeah, and yeah. they have never reached out to me, or I've never reached out to them, yeah. and or they've never been to a um, Wallace conference or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I've looked. You can kind of see who else is in the room there, mm-hmm. and I've seen some other people there looking at Wallace stuff, and I'm like, I'm gonna write their name down, see what they publish. <laughs> nice. Um, but I mean, I'm just lucky that I live here. There, yeah. there are other people who um, go there probably as much as me or more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Heather Hauser, who teaches oh, yeah, at yeah. UT, yeah. she's 
she's probably there a lot. Yeah. She writes on Wallace and ecology and environment. Yes. Um, And and that's an interesting thing, too. I was going to say, like, if you coming here or any scholar who makes it from the UK or Australia or Europe or anywhere in the world to the US, you know, I I see that kind of super interesting because it's like you're establishing your street cred. (laughs) Like, like you make it here and you can go back and be like, oh, I'm an American scholar, too. Have you been? You're like, yes. Yeah, I always get embarrassed when people ask me, have I been? And I have to like, you know, my chin lowers a few degrees. And I <laughs> but going to the conference, I mean, you've no. been. Like, you've been to, the, it would be a different thing if you've like never been to the U.S. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Like Gerald Marnane, the Australian writer, he's famous for like, I don't think he's ever left Australia. Oh, really? Oh, really? Huh. And he's never been on an airplane. So, I mean, hmm. there are very like good writers who are provincial right but there there's also like a thing in academia that is super worldly right now where it's like yes i went to a conference in paris i went to a conference (laughs) in italy and the u.s and australia and ireland and where i mean it's just jet around that that it's still yeah. relatively new thing i think there's like an exoticism to it i know someone who's doing her phd on on australian literature so she'd be the person to talk to about that um but she was sort of going oh it just sucks because i i picked an area where all the conferences are held in this country like i don't get to go overseas and do travel so oh yeah i don't know must be the perk of like academia to be able to go to conferences overseas i would say yeah, for sure. And I guess you'll have that luxury uh, yourself coming up pretty soon with Oz Wallace. Yes. Yeah. That that will be um, a nice 50-minute plane trip <laughs> to the conference yeah, rather there than you a 32-hour yeah. affair. So, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that. It'll be interesting to see um, who ends up there as well because I imagine that there are a lot of um, American scholars that won't be able to get down for it, but um, yeah. I think it'll bring out a whole new group of people too, which will be cool. Yeah, I'd imagine it'd be cool if there were people from like New Zealand who got over and mm. Southern Asia. Yeah, and to see just um, who else in Australia is kind of looking at him. Like I was mm-hmm. um, going back to Ashling. Like I was super surprised that like when I found her at the conference and that she had an Australian accent and that like <laughs> we hadn't worked it out yet so yeah yeah, no it'll be cool yeah there's usually like a pretty solid contingent of australians in illinois for the for the conference but uh not quite as many this year Mm. without tony and and lucas and dan and those guys are you guys at all able to come down to oswellos or is that not looking on the cards yeah it's a no-go for me unfortunately (laughs) i would love to maybe next year though because i'll be living in new zealand for about oh, six really? months yeah from like That's february so cool. to august i'll probably be living in uh southern new zealand so if oz wallace happens to be during one of those months i will hop over for sure that would be great yeah new zealand should be good i would say yeah i think so <laughs> uh, i've got this sisyphean uh, nine to five job <laughs> that it's really tough to get time off from but yeah because the uh, travel time is like as you know grace yeah. you were you last uh, <laughs> on our last episode you were the person who came the furthest for the conference mm-hmm. you won the first book um so you know like that is a, a soul crushing uh nightmare of public transit to come it, from it australia to america it's not public <laughs> well yeah, no. yeah yeah 
I um when I money. I mean the flight itself was pretty straightforward, but when I got to Dallas and was catching a flight to Chicago, there were just like just so many delays, and yep. we actually were on the tarmac, and I had this moment feeling like um Elaine in that Seinfeld episode, <laughs> stuck the on subway. the subway, yeah, yeah. like just screaming in my head, and yep. like the plane would start moving, and I'd be like, oh, okay, everything's fine, and then it would just stop again, and it was just this <laughs> absurd horrible thing but i think by that stage i was probably just sleep deprived rather than actually any kind of you know discomfort oh yeah and like peopled out too because i mean it's rad to be at camp but at the end of camp you can't wait to just be by yourself for a while (laughs) you know that's like yeah definitely well think thanks for making the journey yeah we appreciate it oh i enjoy (laughs) it i hope i mean i should hope to be back there next year as well given that i'll actually be in the country so oh that's right yeah um yeah, um, speaking good. of like fear of missing out, it occurred to me in downtown Bloomington uh, the day after the conference that I won't be able to make the ISU conference next year because I'll be oh. in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> so I'm really banking on Oz Wallace being my my annual yeah Wallace conference. Next- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Um, what uh, what were kind of like your main conference highlights or takeaways this year, Grace? Were there any um, particular talks you went to? You mentioned Matt Luder's talk being awesome, and it was. Anything else that that's really kind of like uh, stayed with you in the last few weeks? There were a lot of really excellent talks, and um, I thought uh, that there were quite a few good ones in, and this sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet, which I'm not because I have nothing <laughs> to do with their papers, but in the politics panel I've found really interesting. Oh, cool. Um, but overall, I think, you know, a lot of the memories came from the conversations in the hallways and kind of, um, hanging out with people around the panels. So, um, that's sort of where my happy memories come from. Yeah. Yeah, The social uh, aspects of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Definitely. I think that's what keeps me going back (laughs) Matt and Rob's panel was excellent. Oh yeah. That ruled. There is no And and the concavity live episode. Oh, uh, Yeah. Not to blow your own trumpet or anything. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of. (laughs) What about you guys? Did you guys have any particular highlights? Uh, I would also cite Matt Luter's paper as being, as being a great, uh, a, a very well and and thoughtfully delivered paper and he was telling me before he gave it that he was like he'd never been more nervous to give a paper at this conference than this one um Mm. you know because of the personal nature of it and so i thought that was really cool uh to see him you know address that publicly and this is a guy who like you know wrote understanding jonathan lethem he's like you know the marshall boswell of the jonathan lethem studies so um i thought that was that was a great talk obviously matt and rob's talk was great um what else what else stood out uh john mango and samantha wallace's panel was fantastic um and jeff Seaver's keynote was you know obviously outstanding Mm. yeah so i would give a shout out to uh michael o'connell yeah i don't know i really liked his paper about Hemingway. Hemingway. yeah it was great and uh, i thought that was phenomenal we could do a whole wrap-up of the conference but i'm I'm not i'm not going to (laughs) Um, that's a pity i didn't get to see that paper so i have to try and it was really good yeah yeah he was on a panel with um julianne mccobin and she did a paper about uh joelle van dyne i thought was really good Mm -hmm. um but but michael i've always admired him as a critic and I, i he's one of those scholars that his writing is so good and clear and crisp that yeah. i i look forward to everything that he writes i thought his paper was fantastic mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you don't see a lot of like Hemingway Wallace uh, discussion. Like none. Yeah, N- none. So it's like a really refreshing, refreshing talk for sure. No, super great. Yeah. Um, Grace, do you have any final thoughts before before we sign off tonight? Um. Hmm. No, I guess not. I mean, I, I, yeah, no, I, I can't even. My brain's clearly not working at the it's moment. Fine. I don't think I've had no, coffee we can, yet today. We can oh, cut yeah, that. No, yeah, it's well, what time is it there? Where you it's in the morning. Oh, it's one o'clock. But like, oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> you just woke up. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, have you guys got any any final things that you would like me to comment on, or um, things that you want to say? Stuff. I, hmm. I mean, the, the one thing I forgot to mention in your intros, I would say that Grace is also on the editorial board of our new journal of David of Foster Wallace studies. And so I think you're going to have an interesting viewpoint into where the field is going. So, you know, we might check in with you from time to time and see like what your perspective is on things, how it's, you know, getting submitted and things. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. It's really interesting reading all the abstracts and seeing what, um, yeah, the new directions that things are headed in. Yeah. For cool. Sure. Are there any particular like subject areas that you're especially psyched about in terms of like where scholarship is going lately? Um, I, I think because I have such limited, uh, background in it i am really interested in the diversity stuff and yep. seeing where um gender and race sit in his works yeah. um but also um uh, and this is a focus of oz wallace kind of comparing him alongside other authors and um you know you, you just mentioned that hemingway like that was a refreshing paper so i'm i'm curious to see where people take that and where they read his influences mm-hmm. into him yeah. as well mm. yeah nice cool well, we very much look forward to your novel, Grace, in the future, and <laughs> seeing some familiar faces. Uh, novella length. Novella. I like the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah, the totally. novella length yeah. novel. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, we'll, it'll be interesting. I think the Wallace community will be the community that will most matter to me in terms of how they respond to it. So it'll, right. it will be very interesting to get some feedback cool, on it cool. eventually. Awesome. Well, we're happy to get that out there. Help you get it out there once it, once it lands. Yeah. <laughs> great do the, the tweets and stuff um grace thank you so much for coming on the show it's been awesome to hang out with you a couple of weeks ago at, in illinois and now to catch up with you again uh and talk about your scholarship and and all the cool things that are on the horizon for your work so we very much appreciate you coming all this way from southern australia to the king oh, well, and thank you guys you've made me feel very welcome and like it's it's not a stretch to say that being on your show is a little bit of a dream come true. So, um, yeah, it's that's... very exciting for me to be here. Well, that's a nightmare for wow. me to be on this show. Uh. So. <laughs> I'm sweating the whole time, every time. I'm just kidding. Uh, and if people want to follow you, are you on Twitter, academia, where are you at? Yeah, I've got an academia.edu page, which hasn't been updated in a while. And I also have a Twitter account that I don't, uh, tweet from very often mm-hmm. but people can go to both if they would like cool cool <laughs> I think um, the Twitter handle is capital G H underscore Chipperfield with a capital C so that's probably my most public account that people can access cool cool yeah and Matt where can the people find the Great Concavity in all the onlines we're at Concavity Show at Twitter and Instagram yep concavity show and you can email us concavity show at gmail we love getting the email we do um feel free to email us any questions it's been a while since we've had some um 
I would say show worthy discussion that we would bring on there. We get a lot of uh, good emails, but if you have like specific questions you want us to address on the show, yeah. feel free to email us. Or ideas for episodes um, or guests that you would like to see on. Yeah, like or if that. you have any other suggestions of where we should um, move the conversation, we've tried mm-hmm. some on Facebook, and uh, we might keep trying that. Um, it doesn't seem to be as great for conversations as Twitter, where there's a lot of people that yeah. are already kind of built-in community there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have other ideas, let us know, too. Yeah, absolutely. And if you ever feel like it and you want to leave a review on iTunes, uh, I've heard... And I've not done a lot of research on this, but I've heard that the more reviews there are on a podcast, the more publicly visible it is in terms of like uh, algorithms recommending it to people and stuff. So, you know, if you want more people to hear this, then you could leave a review and we'd really appreciate it. Uh, Four out of five stars uh, would be great. (laughs) That was uh, (laughs) Dave's whole paper revolved around that, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. That, that that turned into a, a very fun uh, continuing joke throughout the weekend. It was, it was a mini meme of four or five stars. There. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. We want to thank, as usual, Robin O'Neill for her supplying of the art for our podcast. And we want to thank the band Parquet Courts for letting us use their music. And Matt, is there anyone else specifically that you'd like to thank, you know, maybe from the um, conference? Well, I want to say, first of all, get well soon to Robin O'Neill. Yes. And we're a big She's fan on the of her mend. podcast, uh, me reading stuff, but I just want to give her as much um, well wishes as uh, possible. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, everyone who attended the um, the Wallace Conference, especially the people, I feel bad that I didn't get to talk to everyone, but I got to talk to a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to exclude anyone, but I do want to give a special shout out to Ryan Edel, yeah. who was the conference organizer and uh, is super important to keeping that thing um alive and working Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. thanks ryan yeah absolutely and uh very cool to meet a few listeners who just came because they listen to the podcast and they love wallace oh yeah just wanted to hang out and and get more of that in their life so super rad shout out to you guys as well you know who you are yeah a lot of a lot of good um people that we got to meet in the flesh there that was great yeah i think we mentioned most of them by name last episode so yeah Cool. All right, Grace, thank you so much again. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great. Mama Cedar.